Our longtime former colleague, Mike McIntyre, helped out in answering a question we asked yesterday about any lieutenant governors that moved into the governor's office. He pointed out that our current governor had been a lieutenant governor, but he didn't get elected straight from that. He went to the Senate for a while. Uh, Jane Cahoon, I think he also pointed out that Voinovich was lieutenant Voinovich governor. And, and um, I believe Dick Celeste, too. So, uh, yeah, the, so the it, thing is, the last two before John Houston, Mary Taylor and Lee Fisher, did not become governor. Well, and it's not a one of them tried. And it's not a direct path that all of these people went off by themselves. So thank you, Mike McIntyre. That was uh, nice of you to do. Mike now the uh, running the whole news operation over at IdeaStream after having been a longtime reporter and columnist for The Plain Dealer. Let's begin. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. It's a Friday. Everybody's happy. It's a Friday. Welcome, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Chris Wernowski. You're all glad it's Friday, right? Yes. Let's get through it. Let's begin. Are two people in Cuyahoga County really facing up to eight years in prison because the sound waves from their megaphones were considered weapons of assault? Chris Ranowski, this is one of those stories that makes absolutely no sense to me. I cannot believe the Cuyahoga County prosecutor is pushing this one. Uh, it's just it's it's such a First Amendment thing. So what are the details? Take us through, because I don't think many people are going to be able to believe it. Yeah, this is a strange one. And and first off, I have to credit the Cleveland scene actually broke this story. But uh, Corey Schaefer actually did a really good job uh, following it up. And 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 last summer, there were a series of protests outside of the popular Ohio City restaurant town hall over some some racial comments made by a restaurant manager in response to criticism from a former employee over the restaurant's apparent lack of COVID protocols. And during one of the demonstrations, two of the protesters apparently got in the face of hostess Jacqueline Boyd, who also happens to be the cousin of town hall owner Bobby George. Um, Johiah Douglas and Sydney Yonner uh, now face second degree felony charges after Boyd complained that she suffered hearing damage because the protesters used a megaphone near her head while they were protesting. An undercover detective who was part of the police security detail at uh, this particular protest uh, filed a police report where he described Douglas and Yonner as repeatedly blasting the bullhorns in Boyd's face. Uh, and she later complained to police that she could not hear out of her ear. Uh, attorney Peter Patakos uh, represents the pair and called Cuyahoga County prosecutor Michael Malley's prosecution uh, outrageous, adding that being that quote being being subject subject to a baseless felony prosecution is one of the worst things that can happen to a person at the hands of their government. Even if uh, the defendants are acquitted, substantial damage is done. And here the damage is exponential due to the chilling message sent to anyone intending to exercise fundamental protest rights in the area. Of course, O'Malley stood by his office's decision saying, quote, it is sound, but you're doing damage with sound. Uh, nobody wants to be in a situation where our First Amendment rights are being violated, et cetera, et cetera. It's All right. So, Chris, but set, set the scene a little bit. It's not like they were inside town hall. They were outside. They never stepped foot <clears> on the <throat> town hall property. And they were in a parking lot, right? Um, I believe they were out in the front of the building um, because there were – it was interesting because I, I lived right down the street from this. I, and I went to the first one, which was much more – there were way more people there and a huge police presence. And – 
what ended up happening during both demonstrations or during the one that I was at was that people were in the front of the building and in the back of the building and that because there's two entrances because one comes in from that big parking lot out behind all of those businesses along the 25th on in Ohio city. And, and so we haven't seen any video or, or any of the, the evidence they used to reach the conclusion that this is a crime. Uh, but Peter Patakos believes that, that, you know, this is a something that will get dismissed, but I, I think the prosecutor's office uh, disagrees. All right. But, but the, usually with noise, you know, if people are playing their stereos loud and things there, there are ordinances in municipalities that govern how loud things can be. And I, and mm-hmm. sure Cleveland has a noise ordinance. If these people were there and police were there, and they were in violation of a new noise ordinance, you'd think they would have been cited, but no one was cited for violating any kind of noise ordinance. It, it just, it baffles me that you could turn this into a felony where people could go to prison for eight years. It just well, baffles me. Well, and, and it's worth pointing out that in the police report that the detective filed, he did refer to these demonstrators as Antifa and BLM. So, there might be a little bit of needling going on here because apparently neither of these demonstrators are affiliated with either of those groups. But but the, but the prosecutor is supposed to be the gateway. Common sense is supposed to play into these decisions. You you don't have to present that to a grand jury. You could use some common sense and say, okay, a felony prosecution isn't the way to deal with this. I mean, this sounds like more of a civil suit. That, that you cause damage to my hearing, I'm going to sue you for the damages. But you're criminalizing a protest where where nobody was accused of doing anything wrong. I, 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 I This is one of the strangest stories that's come down the pike in, in months. I mean, it's just sound waves as a weapon in what was a legal protest. I, I just don't know what the prosecutor's office is thinking here. I, I think there will be a little more to the story as to how this got how this reached the level that it's reached. And, and I think that there's, there's probably more to this than, than we know at this point. And I think, I think if we, we keep on this, we're going to learn a little more about how, how they reach their decision. So well, we'll, I'll keep, I'll keep my voice down for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> so I don't get charged with causing you injury. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With all the secret underhanded tactics that First Energy used to try to kill off city-owned Cleveland public power, how is Mayor Frank Jackson thinking these days? Lord Johnson, you're going to be able to answer that question because he spent a good bit of time with our editorial board yesterday going over the budget and some things. We've done a lot of good stories on First Energy's attempt to subvert Cleveland public power. We have more coming. But Frank Jackson laid out what his strategy might be. Yeah, the city may sue. So Jackson said Thursday that the city's contemplating legal action against First Energy for the role it had in secretly funding this campaign to discredit the city's electric utility, which is CPP. He had discussed this possibility with cabinet members, including his chief of operations, Darnell Brown, and the director of public utilities, Martin Keene. He said he hasn't decided yet on a course of action, but he used pretty strong words. He said, it's pretty clear to me that they use this dark money to undermine our customer base. And as we've reported a lot and talked about on this podcast, First Energy had funded this self-described grassroots organization, Consumers Against Deceptive Fees, which sent a bunch of mailers to customers of Cleveland Public Power beginning in 2018. Jackson said that in his view, the company sought to take harmful, monopolistic actions against its competitor. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing they've got to come up with. They have to come up with a legal principle by which the the first energy could be held accountable. I mean, you'd think they could, but when he used the word monopolistic, I, I, if, if they start to, to paint some kind of predatory behavior, um, it could be interesting. You know, he didn't really say what he wanted. It sounded like he wanted money, mm-hmm. but you also might see the city make a move to force First Energy out of Cleveland as a service provider. That right. Cleveland would take over all of its infrastructure and be the sole provider in Cleveland. It's going to be interesting to see because you can see more lawsuits coming First Energy's way. I mean, the, the the details that are coming out of what they did while Chuck Jones was their CEO, it's mind boggling. It'll be interesting to see if they still exist in two years or whether they end up bankrupt and carved apart to go to new companies that do operate in the public interest and aren't so sleazy. I mean, it, it, but you think about the monopolistic term. You, you you think about outside of CPP, anybody that you know that lives in Northeast Ohio, like they all have those, you know, illuminating company or whatever parts of First Energy. But yeah, the city-owned utility has 70,000 residential, commercial, and industrial customers inside Cleveland, including First Energy Stadium, which is funny. Um, but First Energy has about 60,000 customers in Cleveland. So they're pretty neck and neck. Well, it, it, this was the perfect storm of, of monopolistic behavior, really, because you had a company willing to do really sleazy things, providing tens of millions of dollars to do those sleazy things. You had a public utilities commission that appears completely complicit and in the pocket of the utility and a legislature where you could buy off the people. I mean, it's like, how, how else does this go? And now that we know all this, even though the legislature won't repeal this corrupt nonsense, everybody's focused on it and we're keeping the heat on as much as we can to get to the bottom of it. But, but if Cleveland takes this in, I can't wait for the discovery in that case because it'll be, <laughs> there's going to be more to, to see. We still don't know. We know we're part of the money for that bogus uh, nonprofit was in Cleveland, but there's still a couple of years for which the source has not been listed. It's pretty clear. I think that it was first energy, but it's a lot more money and eventually we're going to get at that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Houston announced Wednesday he is not running for the U.S. Senate seat, being vacated after next year by Rob Portman. Jane Cahoon, we have another big name who is not running. Who is it? Yeah, on Thursday we found out that Congressman Jim Jordan was also taking his name out of the mix. Uh, we can't say the decision was really a surprise, but... It was kind of surprising that it that it came so soon. We we thought maybe he was going to string the field along for a while, but uh, he he said he wants to continue serving the great people of Ohio's fourth congressional district, and he and he wants to continue his important work on the judiciary committee, where where he says, "quote uh, He can advance an America America first agenda, promote conservative values, and hold big government." accountable. So that's his uh, stated reason for doing that. You might want to speculate on on other reasons, you know, uh, but but the fact is he currently, he does like his platform in the House as one of the chief, chief Trump loyalists and, you know, antagonists to, to Democrats. So uh, I, I'm sure he's hoping that the Republicans will win control of the U.S. House next time around and which would give him even more power and and maybe even make him a candidate for House Speaker. So unless uh, the Trump loyalists are all scorned by then because of all the information that's come out about how they tried to overthrow the government. But l- l- let's get back to it. I mean, 
two days after John Houston says he's thinking about it, he pulls out. And right after we publish his story, really, say online saying that Jim Jordan holds all the cards or most of the cards on this and everybody's going to watch him and he's going to decide. He immediately gives up his hand and says, no, I'm not <laughs> doing it. And I, so there's one of two things I think happening here. One is the Amy Acton factor really is scaring them. They don't want to go head to head with this this very different kind of candidate because I don't think you can run the mean and nasty kind of campaigns they're used to when you're dealing with Amy Acton as your opponent. You would have to pretty much campaign on her level, which will be about issues and decency. Or is this the Republicans getting together and saying, we can't have a free-for-all? We can't do what what the presidential elections are, where there's a dozen people all kicking each other in the teeth. Let's get behind one candidate now. So if you're not going to be in, get out and let's see who's left, which leaves us with Jane Timken, right, as the chief yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Mandel now goes ahead and gets in there because I don't know that he's um, cares what the Republican Party. <laughs> you keep, you, you keep bringing him up, and I keep shaking my head, thinking that he has that. It's a it, this is not the Josh Mandel of the last two runs. He's got a monumental mountain to climb. I mean, he left the the campaign abruptly last time, saying he had to go take care of family issues and his wife. And then he secretly scurries off to some distant county and divorces her. I mean, that will be investigated. Reporters are going to be looking at that saying, whoa, what happened there? What caused this rapid falling apart of his marriage? Because he's Mr. Wholesome America. I mean, he campaigned on family values and all these things. So I don't I I just don't see him as the candidate he was. And he wasn't very good the last time. He just had money. I, I just don't see him making a hard run at this. Disagree with me. We'll we'll, we'll see, Chris. Let's just say we'll see. Okay. All right, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Okay. If he runs, we're gonna have fun. There'll be stories to do, you know. It's the, and there are still a lot of other people in the mix, but I think Chris Wernowski wanted to say something. Oh, I, I was just gonna say that I think that that much of the speculation around Jordan was mostly driven by national media. I think, I, you know, in, in talking to a couple of our political reporters and, and, and sort of getting their, their sort of take on this, I get the sense that, that there was, there wasn't a lot of serious consideration that Jordan would run in within Ohio, that, that most of the speculation was kind of driven by, you know, parachute journalists from DC and New York basically <laughs> saying like, Oh, Jim Jordan, he's, he's a, he, you know, he's a known entity. He might run. And, well, and, well, and we've, we've said on this podcast that, you know, there, 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 he, he would be really, it would be difficult for him to, to, to get over in the cities, I think. And that, that a large, a large part of his success is because of gerrymandering and that district that is very, you know, I mean, it's his district has become the, the poster child for gerrymandering at well, a one of them. scale. There's, and, there's a bunch of them. There's right, but, but I mean, I, look, I see that I see that dragon-shaped district come across my Twitter feed at least three or four times a day. Oh, no, I thought no, it was no, a duck. Yeah. No, it's, and look, Jane Cahoon earlier this week was the first to say, I really don't think he's running. What I'm wondering, though, I mean, politicians love to be in the mix. And so mm-hmm. as long as he didn't say, I'm not running, he was high up in the discussion nationally and in the state. And he ended it abruptly, really abruptly called up the, you know, the, his office called us and said, Hey, we want to, we want to make an announcement. We're not doing it. And I, I, I'm just curious why he would do that. He loves publicity. He loves to be 
in the media, good or bad, it seems. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out why would he do that? And that's what makes me speculate that the Republicans are trying to get behind one candidate. Jane, do you have any other thoughts about why he would do it? Just even if he had no intention of running, why he would end the spe- speculation that abruptly? Well, you could you could speculate that he that he came to the realization that maybe the general election would be too tough for him and he doesn't want to give up being in Congress. Um, but I think maybe your speculation might be more correct in that he, he, you know, he wants a Republican to have that seat and, uh, you know, somebody in the Trump mold. So I think maybe he'd rather just throw his weight around that way, not not run for it, but maybe try to help his party get behind someone else. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. The news about Ohio's role in the January 6th insurrection at the nation's capital that was sparked by Donald Trump keeps getting worse. What's the latest on two central Ohioans who were arrested earlier this month and were pretty seriously immersed in the militia movement? Chris Ranowski, this was one disturbing story. And it keeps getting disturbing, and it's going to keep getting more disturbing, I think, as, as weeks keep going on. But in the in the weeks and days that follow the election, uh, you're right, an Ohioan who is part of a right-wing militia group talked about committing violence if Joe Biden took out office, vowing to fight, kill, and die for our rights, according to federal court records. Jessica Watkins one of the Ohio militia members is charged in the January 6th riot at the Capitol and a Virginia man by the name of Thomas Caldwell. But they both talked about using violence uh, with Caldwell writing in a November 23rd text message to Watkins that, quote, I believe we will have to get violent to stop this. And um, they're also charged alongside uh, Watkins and a man by the name of Donovan Crowell are both from Champaign County, Ohio. And they basically hatched plans uh, for, I mean, they, they participated in uh, like military style planning in Ohio with an eye on on disrupting Biden's inauguration. And um, they're both accused of being part of the group that stormed the Capitol while Congress attempted to confirm the results of the election. Uh, they've been charged with conspiracy, obstructing an official proceeding, destruction of government property and unlawful entry. It's, it's interesting to note that they're one of only a handful of people who have been charged so far with conspiracy, which, see, you know, it's, it's easy to overlook that when you're looking at this whole this laundry list of charges. But the conspiracy means that, that federal investigators are looking at something much bigger than just the fact that they walked into the Capitol. All three of these people are military veterans affiliated with the Oath Keepers, which is a right wing a loosely organized anti-government group that recruits law enforcement and military members to join. And it, it this is, you know, it, as news about this continues to, to come out, it, it just becomes much more sinister and it, and it becomes much more apparent that this was, this was, you know, this was organized by some, some serious people who right. are so, doing some harm. So let, it, let me, let me take us down the rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. this is what Donald Trump sparked. This is what the impeachment is about. And what I love, everybody's all discouraged thinking that the Republicans in Congress are going to give them a pass, uh, you know, because they're you know, loyalists or whatever. But the beauty of the impeachment is it's going to be a calling of the role. So everybody that looks at this in Congress is going to have to, it's going to be yes or no. Is he guilty or not? And they're going to look at these details, this kind of thing. They're going to look at what he did. And if they vote no, 
that he's not guilty. They're going to do so knowing their name will be there forever, that their descendants will know that their people stood by this kind of despotic behavior. And I keep hearing from people that are all like, man, he's not going to get impeached. And it's like, it doesn't matter because they're going to call the roll and they got to put their name on the line. And that never goes away. I don't, I don't share your optimism with this. I think, I think their, their behavior in the weeks since, I mean, in the week since Biden took the presidency is, has shown that they're, they're leaning back into Trumpism, that most of the party is going to probably just forget this. We'll see. But but here's here's the thing. Here's the thing though. I I just want to say that if the strategy that they're going to go with in this impeachment is Trump convinced all these people to storm the Capitol. I don't think that's going to work. I think the the right track to take is is everything that he did to try to meddle in that Georgia election. Like those stories are much much more damning than than I think people are giving them credit for. But that's not the charge. I, I know, charge. and that's 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 what I'm. You know, it, you could point to that and and see some really specifically nefarious people and you could get witnesses to come in and talk about it. And if, if, if that, if, I mean, it just seems like they, 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 I mean, that's not what they're voting on. I mean, that's not what the house impeached him on. They impeached him on causing the insurrection and that's what the Senate has to vote on. So the the evidence will be presented. And then one after another, those senators are going to have to get up and say guilty, not guilty. And I know they're talking strong and I know, the vote last week was we, you know, was supposed to be a precursor. But man, you're putting your integrity on the line for all time. We'll have to see. Like I said, we're going down the rabbit hole. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We originally thought police, hospital workers, and others on the front lines of COVID were most in danger in the pandemic. Not so much, it appears, Laura Johnston. We there's been a survey done of what the most dangerous jobs are. There are a whole bunch of people in Northeast Ohio working in those jobs. What are some of them? Yeah, this is a study out of the University of California, San Francisco, and they studied actually death records among California's working age population from uh, people ages 18 to 65. And this is really interesting. They didn't just look at the total number of people who died. They looked at excess mortality, which is calculated by comparing the number of deaths in a time period to the expected number of deaths in that time period. And they looked at more than 10,000 cases of excess death from March through October 31st. That's 22% higher than expected without the pandemic. Um, Food and agriculture workers top that list. So the top 10 jobs include cooks. That's number one. Uh, packaging and filling machine operators, agricultural workers, bakers, and construction laborers. Those are your, your top five. Um, I think that cooks and bakers make a lot of sense. I remember state briefings saying that cooks couldn't wear masks because of the fire hazard. Like if they're working over a hot grill or something, you don't want your mask to catch fire. But I was surprised by the number of workers who are outside jobs like agriculture and construction, because you would think that would be a little safer. But if you think about it, these are all labor intensive, poor, mostly poorly paid jobs where you cannot work from home. Right. I mean, the, the, a lot of them were very surprising. I'm not really surprised about the bakers because you can't socially distance the kitchen, right? The kitchen has the ovens. It has the, the counters. It was never designed for people to be socially distanced. So if you're going in to do that kind of thing, you're close to other people. But but it, it was not the jobs that you you thought it would be. And I, you're right. It's people who can't work from home. So 
So all of those people that couldn't work from home are in danger, but they're not in 1A, they're not in 1B, they're not anywhere on the uh, spectrum of people to get the vaccine. And this is a study that shows who's getting it. You'd think we might right. start looking to uh, these low-paid workers and trying to help them out. Chris Warnowski. Oh, I just, I had a question. Didn't, didn't Ohio make it so you, 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 they would kick you off of unemployment if you declined to go back to your job, uh, if you were concerned about your health? You had to make a really strong case. There was a way to do it, but it was incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. And did so they make the it? Part, yes. Did they make it impossible for you to sue your employer if you got sick doing your job? I don't think that ever passed. That never passed. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I interesting. I think. About I could well, be wrong. People put maybe, in that position. Maybe Mike McIntyre is listening. Got to do better. Help us, Mike. I, the thing is that people, different lobbying groups, are asking the state, to, you know, for special dispensation to get in line because they they say we're at risk. And Dewine kind of fended most of those questions off, and he got a couple yesterday where he said, look, the mortality rates go with age. But I don't think we've done this kind of study in Ohio to say, actually, mortality rates are going with these jobs. And Latino and Black workers were much more likely to have these kind of jobs and have an increase in mortality. Of course, the easiest way to fix all this is to get enough of the damn vaccine, get it into the hands of people. Although the the one shot vaccine uh, that's got a 50 percent, 52 percent success rate against the South African variant. So that's like a coin flip. If you get that one, whether you're going to get sick, you're listening to this week in the CLE. All right. We're going to talk about one more because this is going to consume the rest of the podcast. (laughs) We've talked for 10 months about what's wrong with the Ohio unemployment computer system for 10 months. Governor Mike DeWine has looked to Lieutenant Governor John Houston to repeatedly explain how it will be fixed, even though it is never fixed. It's almost become a comedy routine. Well, no more. What is DeWine's new plan for fixing this disaster, Jane Cahoon? Well, in addition to yet one more apology that he issued um, to all these poor unemployed workers who are just totally frustrated and not getting their payments, he said he's going to bring in the private sector to help lead them out of this mess. Um, as we've said before, this system is really antiquated. It's been completely overwhelmed by the deluge of claims that have been filed since last year when the when the pandemic began and threw so many people out of work. Since mid-March, there have been more than 2.2 million Ohioans who've applied for these benefits, and that's more than the number of claims filed during the previous five years combined. So what DeWine said on Thursday was that it's abundantly clear that state government cannot fix it the way I want it fixed. So we're going out to the private sector. He said his administration has already had some meetings lined up with potential uh, people who could help with this. He didn't reveal much more than that. Um, But his spokesman said he doesn't want to privatize the system, but they they are they're developing a plan to bring executive leadership support from the private sector to help improve operations. Right, so check me here, because you know, we've been asking about this. Everybody's been asking about this since the beginning of time. I mean, we had people on our own staff that were in the labyrinth. I, I distinctly remember John Houston saying we're, we're adding capacity. We're adding modules. Mm -hmm. Stick with this. This is going to get fixed. I mean, he repeatedly was put into the unenviable position of having to explain this disaster. But 
what happened there? Wouldn't you love to know? What did they actually do to, to try and fix it? What have well, they, done? they added a ton more uh, phone employees. I mean, a ton, like at least fivefold, I think. They, they increased that operation. I am not exactly sure technically, you know, what they might have done to the to the computer system. But DeWine made it clear that whatever they've done so far, it's just, it's not doing the trick. So it sounds to me like, you know, they've tried some things to try to address this and it just ain't working. But so, did they? You know, Chris Wernowski has said from the beginning of this, that this is all their fault, that they had this system. They don't care about the unemployed. If they did, they would have had a much better system. And I just question now where we are. It's actually 11 months, right? In another week, 11 months into this crisis, what did they actually do to try and fix it? And why did it fail? I mean, the postmortem on that is really what we want to see. It's in the details now. Did they mm-hmm. make any kind of effort? Did they spend any amount of money to try and fix this? Or did they just pay us lip service? Because it's one of two things. They're grotesquely incompetent. Uh, or they didn't really try, right? Because if you spend 11 months trying to fix something like this, you ought to have something to show for it. Chris Ranaski, you want to weigh in? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it is, it's that classic government, you know, the, the small government thinking that had kind of led us to this. And I, I just, you know, to, I don't know, to throw your hands up at this, at this point and, and, and say, what do you get? Well, well, we're going to work. I, I mean, we, this should be figured out and, you know, people should not be having the issues. We, we shouldn't have had, you know, people's personal information apparently accessed by, I mean, there's just so much about this that, that leaves (laughs) all the fraud now we have. Right. And right. And so it's, it's, we have to do better. And, and I think that, that it's, it's not, I think the lip service that we get from, from Houston and the, and the, and DeWine's administration about this issue, you know, I think there needs to be a much more thorough examination of just everything that went wrong with this, because, we're almost a year into this now and, and this stuff is just inexcusable. And I, I, you know, I, I hate to come down so hard on them because I, you know, I, I feel like I do it a lot, but people, people are still hurting and people are still struggling. And I think that, you know, to, to get on TV every week and talk about all of the good things that are happening about while ignoring the fact that food pantry lines are still long and, and that, that we keep setting unemployment, you know, we records here. I not records, but I mean, it just keeps getting worse. And and so, right. and, you know, always, and what they do every week is show us people getting the the, the shots. I hope they stop that. That is so I want to stick those needles in my eyes every time yes. I did. It's like right. make it stop enough. Okay, you're listening this week in the CLE. All right, good discussion, everybody. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Hope it it's not too cold to keep you inside the whole time. Not Laura; she'll be out skiing, I'm sure. But the rest of you, I hope you have a good time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will be back on Monday.